What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. St. George, I will also do the part of a good knight. The prince then chose Sir John Chandos and Sir James Audley to remain by his side during the conflict in order to afford him counsel in case of need. Audley, however, pleaded a vow which he had made long before, to be the first in battle should he ever be engaged under the command of the King of England or any of his children. The prince at once acceded to his request to be allowed to fight in the van, and Audley, accompanied by four chosen squires, took his place in front of the English line of battle. Not far from him, also in advance of the line, was Sir Eustace de Arbrecourt, on horseback, also eager to distinguish himself. As Sir James rode off, the prince turned to Walter. As Audley must needs fight as a knight-errant, Sir Walter Summers, do you take your place by my side, for there is no more valiant knight in my army than you have often proved yourself to be. Three hundred chosen French men-at-arms, mounted on the strongest horses, covered with steel armor, led the way under the command of the Marshals de Audham and de Clermont, while behind them were a large body of German cavalry under the counts of Nassau, Saarbrück, and Nidau, to support them in their attack on the English archers. On the right side was the Duke of Orléans, with sixteen thousand men-at-arms, on the left the Dauphin, with his two brothers, with an equal force, while King John himself led on the rear-guard. When the three hundred elite of the French army reached the narrow way between the hedges, knowing that these were lined with archers, they charged through at a gallop to fall upon the main body of bowmen, covering the front of the English men-at-arms. The moment they were fairly in the hollow road, the British archers rose on either side to their feet, and poured such a flight of arrows among them, that in an instant all was confusion and disarray. Through every joint and crevice of the armor of the knights and horses, the arrows found their way, and the lane was almost choked with the bodies of men and horses. A considerable number, nevertheless, made their way through and approached the first line of archers beyond. Here they were met by Sir James Audley, who, with his four squires, plunged into their ranks and overthrew the Marshal d'Audham, and then fought his way onward. Regardless of the rest of the battle, he pressed ever forward, until at the end of the day, wounded in a hundred places and fainting from loss of blood, he fell from his horse almost at the gates of Poitiers, and was borne from the field by the four faithful squires who had fought beside him throughout the day. Less fortunate was Sir Eustace de Abrincourt, who spurred headlong upon the German cavalry. A German knight rode out to meet him, and in the shock both were dishorsed, but before Sir Eustace could recover his seat, he was borne down to the ground by four others of the enemy, and was bound and carried captive to the rear. In the meantime the English archers kept up their incessant hail of arrows upon the band under the French marshals. The English men-at-arms passed through the gaps purposefully left in the line of archers, and drove back the front rank of the enemy upon those following, 
chasing them headlong down the hollow road again. The few survivors of the French force, galloping back, carried confusion into the advancing division of the Dauphin. Before the order was restored, the Captal de Bouche, with his six hundred men, issued forth from his place of concealment, and charged impetuously down on the left flank of the Dauphin. The French, shaken in front by the retreat of their advance guard, were thrown into extreme confusion by the sudden and unexpected charge. The horse archers, with the Captal, poured their arrows into the mass, while the shafts of the main body of the archers on the hill hailed upon them without ceasing. The rumor spread among those in the French rear, who were unable to see what was going forward, that the day was already lost, and many began to fly. Sir John Chandos marked the confusion which had set in, and he exclaimed to the prince, "'Now, sir, ride forward, and the day is yours. Let us charge right over upon your adversary, the King of France, for there lies the labor and the feet of the day. Well do I know that his great courage will never let him fly, but, God willing, he shall be well encountered.' "'Forward, then, John Chandos,' replied the prince. You shall not see me tread one step back, but ever in advance. Bear on my banner. God and St. George be with us. The horses of the English force were all held in readiness by their attendants, close in their rear. Every man sprang into his saddle, and with leveled lances the army bore down the hill against the enemy, while the Capitaine de Bouche forced his way through the struggling ranks of the French to join them. To these two parties reposed the whole of the German cavalry, the division of the Dauphin, now thinned by flight, and a strong force under the constable de Brienne, Duke of Athens. The first charge of the English was directed against the Germans, the remains of the marshal's forces, and that commanded by the constable. The two bodies of cavalry met with a tremendous shock, raising their respective war-cries, Denis Montjoy and St. George Guien. Lances were shivered, and horses and men rolled over, but the German horse was borne down in every direction by the charge of the English chivalry. The Counts of Nassau and Saarbrück were taken, and the rest driven down the hill in utter confusion. The division of the Duke of Orléans, a little further down the hill to the right, were seized with a sudden panic, and sixteen thousand men-at-arms, together with their commander, fled without striking a blow. Having routed the French and German cavalry in advance, the English now fell upon the Dauphin's divisions. This had been already confused by the attacks of the Capital de Bouche, and when its leaders beheld the complete rout of the marshals and the Germans, and saw the victorious force galloping down upon them, the responsibility attached to the charge of the three young princes overcame their firmness. The lords of Landau, Vendenay, and St. Venant, thinking the battle lost, hurried the princes from the field, surrounded by eight hundred lances, determined to place them at a secure distance, and then to return and fight beside the king. The retreat of the princes at once disorganized the force, but though many fled, a number of the nobles remained scattered over the field, fighting in separate bodies with their own retainers gathered under their banners. Gradually these fell back and took post on the left of the French king's division. The constable and the Duke of Bourbon, with a large body of knights and men-at-arms, also opposed a firm front to the advance of the English. The king saw with indignation one of his divisions defeated and the other in coward flight but his forces were still vastly superior to those of the English, and ordering his men to dismount, he prepared to receive their onset. The English now gathered their forces, which had been scattered in combat, and again advanced to the fight. The archers, as usual, heralded this advance with showers of arrows, which shook the ranks of the French, and opened the way for the cavalry. These dashed in, and the ranks of the two armies became mixed, and each man fought hand to hand. 
French king fought on foot with immense valor and bravery, as did his nobles. The dukes of Bourbon and Athens, the lords of Landar, Argenton, Chambray, Jeanville, and many others stood and died near the king. Gradually the English drove back their foes. The French forces became cut into groups or confined into narrow spaces. Night after night fell around the king. The Ribemont fell near him. Geoffrey de Charnay, who, as one of the most valiant knights in the army, had been chosen to bear the French standard, the Oriflamme, never left his sovereign's side, and as long as the sacred banner floated over his head, John would not believe the day was lost. At length, however, Geoffrey de Charnay was killed, and the Oriflamme fell. John, surrounded on every side by foes who pressed forward to make him prisoner, still kept clear of the space immediately around himself and his little son with his battle-axe, but at last he saw that further resistance would only entail the death of both, and he then surrendered to Denis Montbec, a knight of Artois. The battle was now virtually over. The French banners and pennons had disappeared, and nothing was seen save the dead and dying, groups of prisoners and parties of fugitives flying over the country. Chandos now advised the prince to halt. His banner was pitched on the summit of a little mound. The trumpets blew to recall the army from the pursuit, and the prince, taking off his helmet, drank with the little body of knights who accompanied him some wine brought from his former encampment. The two marshals of the English army, the earls of Warwick and Suffolk, were among the first to return at the call of the trumpet. Hearing that King John had certainly not left the field of battle, though they knew not whether he was dead or taken, the prince at once dispatched the Earl of Warwick and Lord Cobham to find and protect him if still alive. They soon came upon a mass of men-at-arms, seemingly engaged in an angry quarrel. On riding up they found the object of strife was the King of France, who had been snatched from the hands of Montbeck, and was being claimed by a score of men as his prisoner. The Earl of Warwick and the Lord Cobham instantly made their way through the mass, and dismounting, saluted the captive monarch with the deepest reverence, and keeping back the multitude, led him to the Prince of Wales. The latter bent his knee before the king, and calling for wine, presented the cup with his own hands to the unfortunate monarch. The battle was over by noon, but it was evening before all the pursuing parties returned, and the result of the victory was then fully known. With less than eight thousand men, the English had conquered far more than sixty thousand. On the English side, two thousand men-at-arms and fifteen hundred archers had fallen. Upon the French side, eleven thousand men-at-arms, besides an immense number of footmen, had been killed. A king, a prince, an archbishop, thirteen counts, sixty-six barons, and more than two thousand knights were prisoners in the hands of the English, with a number of other soldiers who raised the number of captives to double that of their conquerors. All the baggage of the French army was taken, and, as the barons of France had marched to the field feeling certain of victory, and the rich armor of the prisoners became immediately the property of the captors, immense stores of valuable ornaments of all kinds, especially jeweled baldrics, enriched the meanest soldier among the conquerors. The helmet which the French king had worn, which bore a small coronet of gold beneath the crest, was delivered to the Prince of Wales, who sent it off at once to his father as the best trophy of the battle he could offer him. Its receipt was the first intimation which Edward III received of the great victory. As the prince had no means of providing for the immense numbers of prisoners, the greater portion were set at liberty upon their taking an oath to present themselves at Bordeaux by the ensuing Christmas in order to either pay the ransom appointed, or to again yield themselves as prisoners. Immediately the battle was over, Edward sent for the gallant Sir James Audley, who was brought to him on his litter by his esquires, and the prince, after warmly congratulating him on the honor that he had that day won as the bravest knight in the army, 
assigned him an annuity of five hundred marks a year. No sooner was Audley taken to his own tent than he called round him several of his nearest relations and friends, and then and there made over to his four gallant attendants, without power of recall, the gift which the prince had bestowed upon him. The prince was not to be outdone, however, in liberality, and on hearing that Audley had assigned his present to the brave men who had so gallantly supported him in the fight, he presented Sir James with another annuity of six hundred marks a year. End of chapter 20 Recording by Brett Downey Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.